Well, good morning, Calvary, and welcome to church. It's really good to be with you this morning, and even though we're online, we still get to worship God together. Um, For those of you who may be new, I'm Curtis, and this is just my second sermon, and my first time preaching in front of a camera. So I'm looking forward to it, and I'm going to be speaking to you this morning from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. And this passage is almost like a connection to my first sermon I preached from Romans 8 back in the fall, which talked a lot about about how we're saved and set free in Christ because of the grace that he lavished upon us. So now I want to talk about what that means for us practically. And Paul's going to lay this out in Romans 12. You see, if the first 11 chapters in Romans speak a lot about theology, chapters 12 to 16 talk a lot about how we're to live out that theology in our everyday lives. So let me read out our passage this morning from Romans 12, 9 to 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this passage is really important to understand within its context. You see, at the beginning of Romans 12, Paul reminds us of the reason that we are to follow all these commands in the first place. Romans 12 verses 1 to 2, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." He appeals to the church in Rome by the mercies of God. Because God had mercy on you, you ought to live in this way. Douglas Moo states, a transformed life is not optional. It is rooted in our initial response to the gospel itself. You see, because God had mercy on us, it should drive us to live in a certain way a way that is wholly submitted to God and his will for our lives. A way that, as Paul mentions in the following verses, is ultimately governed 
by genuine love. And this is basically my sermon in a sentence, that because God loved you, you can and should love. Because God loved you, you can and should love. So let's take a look at our main passage for this morning, right? Beginning in verse nine, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Many commentators think that this is Paul's heading and theme for this entire section, genuine love, that is, encompasses all of the exhortations that he gives. Because Jesus loved us, we have an example to follow of how to love one another. Nothing should stop us from loving others. We, we as Christians should love in a way that not merely dislikes evil, but despises it. We should love in a way that not merely prefers good, but clings to it with all our heart and with everything we have. And Paul gives many examples here of how we are to live properly. Love towards Christians and love towards non-Christians. But first he addresses how to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is my first point. Love like Christ. Love like Christ. Paul says in verses 10 and 11, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Paul is talking to the church here. He is saying that this is how we should live and interact with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. A brotherly affection. The same love we give to a family member, we give to our church family. Outdoing one another and showing honor. Don't forget the first verse of this chapter, right? I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. What he's trying to say here is that if God had mercy on you, if he saved you, if you trust in Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, then that should show itself in the way that you live. David preached on this last week. From 1 John 3, chapter 10, uh, verse 10 rather, which says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If you are a child of God, you will love your brothers and sisters in the faith. And John doesn't give us an option here, and neither does Paul. Obviously, we can't be perfect in this life and no one is without sin, but Paul in Romans 12 is trying to tell us something. He spent the first 11 chapters of Romans explaining that we're chosen by God, adopted by God. We're set free from the slavery of sin. There's no condemnation for us now in Christ. Listen to the end of chapter 11 here. Listen listen to what Paul is saying. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. 
Amen. And look, in chapter 12, he gives us the practical applications of all this truth. If you are a Christian, love one another as brothers and sisters. How do brothers and sisters love? How do families love? Or how should they, at least? What is that love supposed to look like? Is it supposed to be filled with gossip? No. What about mistrust? No. What about grudges and feuds? No as well. Rather, isn't there an acknowledgement that though we endure some difficulties, though we have disagreements, though things don't always go as we'd like, we're still a family? A father shouldn't say to his child, okay, you've crossed the line. I now disown you as my son or my daughter. God never does that to us. Despite all of our repeated failures, he never says, you stop being my child now. So Paul is saying here, if God never did that to you, don't do it amongst yourselves. It shouldn't break up a biological family and neither should it a church family. Jesus calls us friends, family. He intercedes for us, defends us, protects us, gives us his spirit. He corrects us out of love, tells us the truth in love. So we can, we must love for when we do this, we actually show that we are Christ's. We are his. Paul is saying to us, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. That's what he's saying. And the question is, are you? Because you should be. So love one another as brothers and sisters. You see, God made a way for you to be saved. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That in spite of all your screw-ups, all your regrets, all your pain, all the burdens that you carry with you that weigh you down, God had mercy on you. Jesus died for you. This is what Paul is appealing to as to why you should do what he's saying. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That's the hope. That's the hope. God had mercy on you. Just like it says in that old Horatio Spafford hymn, it is well with my soul, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. So in response to that, love like Christ. If you experience this, you get to love. Jesus is your example and source. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Basically, go ahead and try to outdo one another in seeing how little time you can spend about thinking about yourselves and your own legacy, your own character, your own achievements, and see how much you can acknowledge other believers and lift them up. Recognize the things they've done. Always go out of your way to show that they're appreciated. Show honor. Be fervent in spirit. 
Don't be lazy in serving God. And this, and this concept, right, it's pretty radical, by the way. Especially in the Roman context that Paul was writing in. You see, most Roman people, as Jerry Toner says, most of them saw their neighbors as competitors, not comrades, in the harsh struggle for scarce resources. To have nothing was to be nothing in the Roman world. Theirs was a culture where people strove to look down on their neighbor with something of the same disdain that the elite looked down on them. And Paul is writing into this context saying, you're not to be like that. Those in the church are not to treat each other like that at all. I mean, from reading that quote there, it really sounds like the Roman world was seriously harsh, and it was. But I don't think their culture is that foreign to us as we may like to think. For example, I'm sure many of you have been downtown. I myself am going to be helping Adam as he looks to plant a church downtown. And I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be a lot of fun, and part of church planting is getting to understand your community and spend time down there. So uh, my girlfriend Celeste and I have this awesome cafe that we like to have lunch at on Sundays after church called Freebird Cafe. And this is pre-lockdown, by the way. And a few weeks ago, we were down there and a homeless man walked in. And he clearly had some mental issues, you know. I don't know specifically, but it was just evident, right? And I've seen him around this area before, always asking for money, uh, things like that. My immediate thought, right, is, oh great, he's going to come ask me for money now for cigarettes or something, and you know, it's annoying enough outside on the street, let alone I'm here trying to enjoy my lunch with my girlfriend, like, come on. To my surprise, though, he actually had a couple loonies of his own, and bought a coffee for himself and sat down close to us, and Celeste was like, I think I'm going to go talk to him. And me, of course, and my pride was like, no, nah, come on, sweetie, you don't need to do that. Right, we're done our food now, let's just pay for it, get out of here. Right, all the while hoping he doesn't start talking to us. And by the way, I don't think I'm the only one who's been in this type of situation before, where you just feel awkward and uncomfortable. And that's part of my point, actually. But Celeste, being Celeste, goes up and talks to him anyways and has a great conversation, finds out his name and that he's staying at the gathering place and all these things. And as we're leaving, I told Celeste, thank you for that. Thank you. Right, because my mindset going into that was, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to try to relate with you right now because I'm too concerned with myself and my own pride, and I ain't bringing myself that low. And I can almost guarantee that I'm not the only one in this church to feel uncomfortable and vain in a similar situation, and certainly not the only one in this city. But remember the quote that I just read about Roman culture, that to have nothing was to be nothing in the Roman world. And I don't think 21st century Canada is all that different in this regard. So the Apostle Paul in this letter to the Romans, is writing into this type of context and he's basically saying, you see how this Roman culture 
likes to look down on others, all the while exalting themselves. Yeah, don't do that in the church. Don't treat fellow believers in Jesus like that. If you're a true Christian, then don't look down on other Christians. Rather, lift them up. Yeah, there's gonna be times you mess up and your pride gets the best of you and that doesn't mean you're not a Christian anymore or anything like that. But strive to be humble like Christ. Don't spend all your energy on trying to, you know, pretend or act like you got it all together or acknowledge your achievements and things like that. Rather, invest all that into lifting others up. Strive to be humble like Christ. As Frank Thielman says about the Roman church, they must renounce the vicious competition for honor that dominated Roman society and instead make sure that others receive the honor. So, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. In other words, love like Christ. And this plays into the next few verses. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And let's just be straight. This genuine love, this is not some modern day watered down definition of love where I love you as only so long as you agree with my position or only as long as you affirm me in whatever I do, regardless if it's healthy or not, right? No, the love that Paul describes is biblical, selfless, sacrificial love. The kind of love that knows when to encourage, but also when to rebuke a fellowship of believers that will spur each other on in the faith. The kind of love, Calvary, that still loves even if you don't get it back. Right, that's what real love is and that applies to the church. To the church member that you have it out for. It applies to marriage. When you don't feel loved or respected by your spouse, you ought to still love Don't only love as long as you receive it in return. That's easy, right? If that's what love is, Jesus never would have died for us. Remember that he loved us while we were still sinners. So love like Jesus. Eagerly serve God with joy, energetically glorify him. You know that famous John Piper quote? God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. This is what that looks like. Fervent in spirit, rejoicing in hope, constant in prayer. This is the kind of love God wants to see in his church amongst his children. Go down to verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, why? Because of the mercies of God. Because God loved you, now you can love and should love. As Douglas Moo points out, verse 13 is a command to literally provide material goods to fellow Christians who need them. Paul is saying, true Christians provide for their fellow Christians who are lacking. Right? They provide for their needs and they show hospitality. Even right now, think to yourself right now even. 
How can I do this? Is there someone at church who needs groceries? Can you make a round of phone calls to people who might be feeling lonely during lockdown? All right, how can you give to the needs of the saints today? Because that's what it means to be in a family. That's what it means to love like Christ. And this brings me to verses 15 and 16, where Paul is still addressing relationships within the church. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Max Anders tells us that there were possibly internal conflicts in the Roman church with class and racial distinctions being made to exalt certain believers over others. Andrews goes on to say this, anyone who would look upon another believer with contempt or conceit because of status or position in life has not grasped the enormous implications of having been redeemed by grace. Right? And I don't think that's only true of the Roman church in the first century. Paul's words are just as relevant today for all churches. I mean, sure, Calvary Baptist may not have a congregation made up of Jewish and Gentile Christians where the Jewish Christians think they're better because they're descendants of Abraham or something like that, right? But surely we like to rank ourselves in other ways, don't we? I mean, what if, what if our musicians, including me, thought, well, I'm more important than the person that just cleans the pews after, I mean, the service can't even go ahead unless I'm playing guitar or unless I'm playing piano or unless I'm singing. Or here's another example. Well, you know, I've been coming here for X amount of years, so clearly what I have to say matters a whole lot more than the person that just showed up three months ago. And you might be thinking right now, I don't say things like that, right? I don't think like that. Sure, but are you quicker to criticize than you are to compliment? Are you itching to find all the faults in something, all the reasons why it's not working as you would like and just take all your criticisms and pin it on someone? And if we're being honest, let's not pretend that never happens here. But Paul is saying in this very chapter, earlier on in verses three to five, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And by the way, if you're sitting at home right now thinking, I sure hope so-and-so hears this, no, 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 no. God is talking about you, about us, about me. He's talking about what it means to love like Jesus loved. And most of the time, that requires a lot more pointing fingers at ourselves rather than others and admitting, hey, I'm the problem. I'll say it again, love like Christ. So Calvary, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Lift each other up. Weep with those who weep. Sympathize with each other. Live in harmony 
with one another. Don't be conceited, but associate with the lowly. Be humble as Christ was humble. Never be wise in your own sight, but in all your ways lean on Christ. So far, I've talked about loving fellow Christians. But now Paul is going to transition and start talking about loving unbelievers and how we're supposed to interact with the world, with those outside the church, outside the faith. Verse 14 says this, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. This is pretty similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As well as Luke 6, 27 to 28. But I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And this brings me to my second point. Suffer like Christ. Suffer like Christ. Remember, Paul is now talking about relationships outside the church with non-believers. And Jesus himself gives examples of what this looks like. In Luke 6, 29-30, where he says, To one who strikes you on the cheek... Offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And this is as countercultural today as it was back then. Because what typically is the response to those who mistreat us or hurt us? I mean, as Christians, what do we sometimes respond by doing? Is it to be humble? to be meek, to follow the example of Christ, or rather, is it to make a big deal out of it, to let the world know, to cry foul on social media, to declare, woe is me, in self-pity. And Paul is writing this in the ancient Roman world where Christians were persecuted to such a severe degree. When Jesus had false accusations thrown at him, when he was mocked, when lies were told about him, when he hung on the cross, he didn't scream injustice, though he would have been right in doing so. But as the prophet Isaiah says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And before Pilate, when he was questioned and asked to defend himself, in Mark 15, verses 2 to 5, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, just to be clear, Paul and Jesus are not suggesting in these passages that we are never to pursue justice or never to defend ourselves, right? They're not saying that we should just be a human punching bag all the time. 
I mean, look what Jesus says in Luke 22 when the temple guards came out to arrest him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. The book that the staff here at Mile One Mission are currently reading is a book called Pastors and Their Critics. And one of the authors, Joel Beakey, says this about Jesus' response to the wrong done against him in his unfair trial. He says, A quiet and meek spirit does not prevent us from speaking out against injustice. Though we must not rail and rage against accusers and oftentimes must endure criticism quietly. At times, we ought to speak up against unjust acts and illegal procedures. As God's servants, we must call people to account for their actions, press their consciences with the truth so that they might be convicted of their sins and brought to repentance, and seek to establish social and legal precedents that will protect other people from similar injustice. Right? I think that's a good, balanced explanation. Because still, even amidst all of that, we're called to bless those who harm us, who criticize us, who falsely accuse us, even those who persecute us. We're called to suffer like Christ because God had mercy on us and loved us as sinners while we were his enemies. So we must also love our enemies and seek to bless them just as Christ did. This brings us to verses 17 to 21. We're called to love like Christ, suffer like Christ. And now here we'll see that we're also called to wait like Christ. Verses 17 to 21 say this, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul is speaking here about the human temptation to take justice into our own hands. And as mentioned before, Paul is not suggesting that we should never pursue justice or that we shouldn't desire to reconcile societal issues or that we should allow ourselves to just keep being abused and taken advantage of by someone. Certainly not. Rather, he is talking about the human heart and our desire to play God. When someone wrongs you, the human impulse is to seek revenge, to seek vengeance. And Paul is saying, leave that up to God. One of the best examples of this is the martyrdom of Stephen. In the book of Acts, chapter 7, verses 59 to 60, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Notice the demeanor of Stephen here. He prays for his murderers. What kind of grace and compassion does that require? You see, Stephen here is actually doing what his Savior did. He's loving like Christ, suffering like Christ, waiting like Christ. And I know oftentimes we look at examples like Stephen and we glorify him, right? And it's true that to die for the name of Christ is a beautiful thing. And perhaps many of you listening are thinking about what it would be like to experience that, right? To have your own name remembered in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Look, the reason why Stephen is so fascinating to us is because he's following Christ. This intrigues us and makes us uncomfortable because we like to think that we do this, right? And yet the person who cuts you off on your way to work or your micromanaging boss or the worker at Tim's that screwed up your coffee, no, I'm not praying for them. Sure, if I ever have to die for the faith, I'll pray for my persecutors just like Jesus and Stephen. But the people I work with, No, can't do that, right? Here's a thought, church. So many of us are willing to die for Christ. How about being willing to live for him? Let's bring this closer to home, Calvary. In this COVID world, right? Do you think it's right for Christians to be yelling at the government or duking it out amongst themselves on social media in front of unbelievers who are looking on? I mean, can we really say that's what loving like Christ suffering like Christ, waiting like Christ looks like? I mean, don't get me wrong. I can't stand online church. Straight up, I want to be with you all again. And, and I've been bitter about this lockdown too. When this happened for the second time, I, I struggled with anger and impatience and bitterness about all this. And why can't we go to church? Why are the gyms not open? Why are the restaurants not open? Why can I not even see my girlfriend? Right? It's frustrating. But if anyone's going to be the most patient, the most loving, the most sacrificial, the most respectful of our government leaders, shouldn't it be Christians? Wasn't it Jesus who said to the Jews who were literally being occupied by a foreign empire, pay your taxes, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's? Right? Everybody loves to quote Acts 5, where the apostles stand up to the Sanhedrin and say, we ought to obey God rather than men. Absolutely, they had to in that context. But listen, nobody has said, because of COVID, we forbid you to preach the gospel. Nobody has said that. So are we going to cause division in the church of Christ, or rather be like Jesus, loving like him, suffering like him, waiting like him. And, and church family, I don't want to make light of anyone's specific circumstances because what if you've been wronged more deeply than that? What if you've been seriously hurt in ways that cut a lot closer to the heart? Because Jesus was hurt deeply. He was betrayed by his friends, falsely accused, Those closest to him denied they ever knew him. He was beaten, made fun of, mocked, absolutely humiliated. Calvary, 
We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That's what Hebrews 4 says. All of our pain, all of our struggles, all of our sin. Jesus understands. He lived it. He experienced it. He endured it. He suffered it. He waited in it. And he calls us to be loving as he is loving, humble as he is humble, forgiving as he is forgiving. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now church, notice what Paul says in the next sentence here, right? Because it's important and it has been massively misinterpreted. If your your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Like, right on. Awesome. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What? What does that mean? First, let me tell you what this does not mean. This doesn't mean that we should serve our enemies in the hopes that God will strike them down, or that misfortune befalls them, or that they die in their sins and face God's judgment. No, that would seem to contradict all that Paul has said up to this point. This image of burning coals on someone's head is meant to represent conviction in the heart of the persecutor. What do you think was happening when Pilate was trying to wash his hands of guilt? What this means is we should love and serve our enemies in such a gracious and sacrificial way that it will cause them to experience personal conviction over the way that they have treated us and hopefully lead them to repent and come to Christ for salvation as well. That's what that means. We're called to not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. So Calvary, what I want you all to take away from this is that we can love and we should love because God loved us. Love the church as members of your own family, humbling yourselves showing them honor while serving God with an eager heart, contributing to anyone in the church who needs help and giving of yourselves, sympathizing with our brothers and sisters in Christ when they're suffering and putting away all thoughts of self-importance, but seeing all believers as equal in Christ as children of God. Love like Christ. This whole passage is just one big command to be like Jesus because of all, all these things that Paul lists, Jesus does perfectly. So love like him. We should also suffer like Christ. We ought to serve graciously and love sacrificially towards our enemies. Amidst all your adversity, learn to suffer like Jesus did. Meek, humbly praying for the very ones who harmed him. Lastly, we need to wait like Christ, being patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. And that's how we need to approach these COVID times, by the way, by being constant in prayer, not quick to make accusations, to attribute blame, but to be constant in prayer, that those around us might see Christ in us recognize their own sin, and turn to the Savior as well for salvation. 
because we know that no matter what anyone has done, no matter what anyone has done to them, no matter how sinful, how evil, how hurtful, Jesus turns absolutely no one away that comes to him. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for this time. I want to thank you, God, for your word. And I want to pray, Father, that your spirit would work in the hearts of all those listening, Lord, that they would hear a better sermon than I could ever preach. Father, I want to pray that you would teach us and guide us and strengthen us in the midst of these times to love like you, to suffer like you, to wait like you. I just ask, Father, in the midst of all this, may we learn to be more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.